This morning I'd like to preach a very simple sermon. I don't plan on breaking any new ground or, or hit, even hitting anything from a new angle, but a sermon we all need to be reminded of from time to time. And the title of the sermon is this, Priest, uh, Peace in the Prison Cell. Peace in the Prison Cell. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you'd help us as we take some familiar truths to anyone who's been in church any length of time, and Lord, would you impress them on our hearts. And uh, Lord, where we have kind of gotten away from doing some of the fundamentals and the basics of the Christian life, Lord, may you help us to commit to step back in and, and to do those. And Lord, we do pray that uh, the sermon would be an encouragement to those that do feel as though that they're in shackles from problems. And God, would you encourage us today, help us, and uh, help us to grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Here in Acts chapter 16, we find uh, Paul and Silas, and they're seeking where to go next in their missionary journeys. And Paul, Paul is trying to go to Asia, uh, not Asia as we know it today, it would have been a little bit different, but trying to go to Asia, and the Bible says in Acts chapter 16 that the Spirit forbade him or told him he's not to go there. He tried another location and he was shut down there as well, and in the middle of the night God sent a dream of a man in the region uh, called Macedonia, and the man was crying out to Paul to come and help him, and so uh, they get up uh, the next day and they begin to travel to Macedonia. They arrive into Macedonia and into the cities of Derby and Lystra, not Derby, Connecticut, amen, different Derby there, but uh, Derby and Lystra, and they meet a lady out on the outskirts of town named Lydia, and they quickly find out that they are a kindred spirit with Lydia. Lydia is a believer. Lydia is born again. And uh, Lydia, it was, the Bible says, a seller of purple. And you think, well, what's the big deal? Back then, to have purple was a very expensive thing. Uh, the process to make the dye, to make something purple was very expensive. And so, if you wore a purple garment, that uh, meant that uh, you had a whole lot of money. And that's why kings wore purple, and that is hung around even to today, uh, being a, a royal color there. And so uh, they come and Lydia puts them up in her house and uh, they began their ministry there in the city of Philippi right out of the house of Lydia. And here Paul and Silas are going around and they're ministering to people. They're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They're preaching the truth first to the Jew and then after they're rejected by the Jews to the Gentiles. And along comes a woman who is possessed with the devil. And this lady begins to uh, obnoxiously support them. Hey, you, you need to listen to this Paul character. You need to listen to this Silas guy. Uh, they know the truth. And I'm sure at first for Paul and Silas it was flattering to have someone uh, supporting them verbally. But the issue was that this lady uh, didn't know how to be quiet. She didn't know her place. Uh, when it came to Paul's speaking. And so I believe there began even a little bit of a shout match. And Paul's trying to preach and this lady is interrupting the preaching. And, and, and yes, her words were positive, but her actions were obnoxious. Her actions were obnoxious. And at some point, Paul turns to this woman who is possessed with a demon and he expels the demon from this woman. And the woman is now in her right mind. You might be thinking, well, I'm sure if she was that obnoxious... I'm sure if she was that much of a nuisance, everyone was probably like, oh, finally, that lady, and, and, and she'll leave us all alone. Well, most people, I'm sure, were happy that this lady had uh, had the demon cast out and had become saved, but not everybody was. You see, this lady used her abilities, her demon possession, to be a soothsayer or a fortune teller, and people would come and 
pay uh, her money so that she could predict the future. There are places like that out uh, today. And let me just say, you don't need to be going in and seeing a psychic. You don't need to be going in and getting your palm read. Uh, that is satanic stuff. You don't need to be messing around with that. And, and I believe a lot of it's phony too, but just stay away from that. That was this woman's profession. And uh, there were men who were profiting off of her possession. There were men who were making money off of her abilities. These men wielded a lot of power in the government there in Philippi. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when she had this demon cast out, she lost the ability to make these men money. And isn't it funny how everybody's okay with the gospel being preached until it starts affecting pocketbooks? You might remember when Jesus came into the, the shore of the Gadarenes and he cast the demon out of the, out of the, the, the maniac of Gadara, and where did the demons go? Into the herd of swine. And what, what did the swine do? They ran off a cliff and they killed themselves and, and the people came out of the city and they asked Jesus to leave. Why? Because their money had been lost and it didn't matter that the man was clothed in his right mind. Well, same situation here. Paul casts out the demon and the money opportunity is lost and now these men uh, who were at one point okay with Paul now are no longer okay with Paul and Silas. They go to the powers that be and they say, Paul and Silas are creating problems. Paul and Silas are... Uh, uh, interrupting the natural order, the customs of our of our time and our day. They're uh, causing problems. These Jews, as they label them, are causing problems. And so uh, you need to have them arrested. And so sure enough, Paul and Silas were arrested. The, the chapter there earlier tells us that they were beaten. They were beaten. They were stripped naked and beaten, had stripes laid on their back hit with a whip, and then they were handed over to the prison guard and told, do not let them out. And so the prison guard, to be extra careful, took them down into what the Bible describes as the inner prison and locked them up in shackles. Put them in the innermost part of the prison, and just like the wild, wild west days where you might see someone's feet and hands out in front of them in shackles, uh, they were shackled up and thrown in jail, beaten for their stand for Christ. I would say that it was not exactly a good day for them. They were not having a good day. What types of problems do you face? What types of problems do I face? Well, by way of introduction, these won't be on the screen, but by way of introduction, I've written down uh, problems that come from three different areas, three different directions. And The first one I noted was self-inflicted problems. Self-inflicted problems. Um, i got to say, this is probably at least 80% of our problems come from ourselves. You can just about stand and look in the mirror directly in your own eye and say, I am my biggest enemy. And it's accurate. Uh, I can point the finger at others, but generally speaking, it is my fault when things are not going well. Uh, I can't control how you treat me. But I can control to how I respond about how you treat me. You can't control how your spouse treats you, but you can control how you respond to the way your spouse treats you. You can't control the way your boss handles you, but you do get to control the way you reply when your boss does not handle you in a way that's just right. You ever gotten a bill in the mail and you're like, what? Where did this come? Come from. You can't control the mail that lands in your mailbox, but you can control the response you get 
to that mail that comes in the mailbox. Self-inflicted problems. It's a good day when you learn to own up to your own mistakes and quit blaming others. In the uh, technology world, the problems are listed under one of three categories, right? You have user error, hardware error, and software errors, right? And we know that most of the time, probably 90% of the time or more, it's a user error, user error. How many of you have ever yelled at a computer or a phone only find out it was your own fault? How many of you ever made that mistake? My hand's up. I've done it. This stupid piece of technology. Uh, well, I hate technology. Usually it's your own fault and you don't know what you're doing and, and, uh, and, and the, the user errors uh, that, that come along with that. I remember a story of a lady, well-to-do lady, a snobbish lady, and she lived alone. She went to the store. She bought the best computer that she could buy. This is what one of the uh, des- a desktop with a tower and she got home and she plugged everything in and she pushed the power button and nothing happened. And so she got on the phone with customer service and she was griping and complaining about how her computer wouldn't turn on and the guy said, well, let's start with the basics and is it plugged in? She said, yes, it's plugged in. And uh, level, uh, tech, level one tech support, level two tech support, level three tech support finally gets the supervisor on the phone and they're going through and try, trying to troubleshoot and figure out what's wrong and this lady is just berating everybody she gets on the phone and, and come to find out the computer was plugged into a power strip but the power strip was plugged into the power strip. And the supervisor finally said to the lady, alright, here's what I want you to do. I want you to unplug everything, I want you to put everything back in the package, and I want you to take the computer back to the store and get your money back. And the lady said, well, shouldn't I take it back and get another computer? He said, no ma'am, you're too dumb to own a computer. User errors. User errors. Usually when we're having a problem, can we just be honest today? It's our own fault. It's our own fault. But those aren't, that's not always the case. The other, uh, I've got three total ways that we, uh, uh, directions that uh, problems come from that we face. The second one I wrote down was others inflicted problems. Others inflicted problems. I went to church in uh, northern Baltimore at uh, Rosedale Baptist uh, as a teenager and uh, as a young adult, uh, first two years, uh, Angel and I were married. That's where we were members. And I remember while we were there, there was a man uh, who I, I'd say loosely he was a friend. I didn't know him real well, but uh, when we saw each other, we were friendly with each other. Uh, he was out on his motorcycle on Interstate 695, which is the loop that runs around the city of Baltimore. And uh, a car came flying out of nowhere uh, and hit him while he was on his motorcycle and sent him flying across the lanes of traffic. He landed on his side and skidded right in front of several vehicles that were flying down the road and cars are swerving to miss him. And he slides up against the, the concrete wall, up against the median on the left lane of traffic and comes to a, st- a stop and uh, got rushed to the hospital. He almost died several different ways and he ended up uh, surviving and, and even uh, making a full recovery. But you say, uh, uh, was that problem his own fault? No, it wasn't his fault. He was just riding the speed limit, riding in the right lane, keeping his distance, watching everyone, and a car comes out of nowhere, and wham, there he goes flying. And sometimes our problems come from other people or other sources. I remember uh, Angela's sister, Andrea, is in town. And Andrea and I were, uh, uh, this would have been right after I got married, or uh, I, I believe I had been married about a year, but Andrea and I uh, were was working a job uh, for a man in our church who owned a cleaning company. We would clean apartments in between tenants. And 
uh, Andrew and I would ride over and get his work van every morning during that summer. I was a school teacher during the school year, and this was a summer job for me. And I'd go get his work van, and I'd drive over and pick up a couple of other people, and, uh, and the four of us would, would go apartment to apartment cleaning. I remember after one work day, uh, Andrew and I were on our way back to uh, my boss's house, and we were going to swap vehicles, and I was sitting in his work van, and we were on a very, very busy road. I remember uh, it was a four-lane road with a double yellow line that kept the traffic uh, separated, very, very busy, uh, businesses on both sides, a lot of shopping and restaurants and whatnot. And I remember sitting at the red light there, I was in the left lane, and uh, behind the white line, just sitting there, and uh, uh, kind of facing the upper direction, there was a hill there, and a vehicle came flying over the hill. Had it been going 40 or 50 miles an hour. Uh, the guy didn't know where his brake pedal was, and he didn't know how to steer. He was going all over the road. Uh, I, there was no way I could have avoided him. He was on his side, then he was back on the other side of the road, then back on his side, and back on the other side of the road. And then I saw him swerve right at me. Have you ever been in a uh, head-on accident or even any accident? You know what I mean when I say things go into slow motion? Anybody here know what I'm talking about? You know you're about to get hit, and there's like this opera singing that starts. Oh, you know, you know what I'm talking about, and there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, and here he came, flying at me. And I wasn't a dead stop. Thankfully, I wasn't moving. That would have been even worse. Uh, but he hit us, and he hit us so hard. He was in a car. We were in a, a van. He hit us so hard, he scooted us back about 20, 25 feet, turned us sideways, and put the, the tires on the sidewalk there, he bounced off of us and rolled down the hill. My, I was wearing a seat belt, but the, the part that came across my chest did not catch, and my ribs smashed into the steering wheel. My sister-in-law was holding a new cell phone there, and the back cover of the cell phone came off and slit her wrist wide open. Thankfully, there was a off-duty firefighter, uh, two or three vehicles behind us, and he came running up, and he was able to get her bleed, her hand elevated and all that, and and uh, police showed up. I stumbled out of the car and kind of fell down on the sidewalk and just laid on the sidewalk in a daze. And the next thing I know, they're putting me on a stretcher in the back of an ambulance. By the way, riding in an ambulance on a stretcher is a miserable ride. How many of you ever here ever had to do that? It's bouncy. It's not any fun. And you got this uh, collar on your neck and all that. Andrea got taken to a different hospital. Now, we'd only been married about a year. Andrea's injury was worse than mine. Does anybody want to guess which hospital Angela went to? Do you think she came to support her husband? No. No, she went with her sister. You say, Pastor, are you bitter? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. How dare she? No, I'm just teasing. Uh, but uh, she went to check on Andrea. Andrea's injury was much worse. In fact, you can ask her. She still has the scar, pretty, uh, pretty big scar there. Uh, on her wrist uh, to, to show where she tr- tried to commit suicide. I mean, uh, she got into an accident. Um, but um, there was nothing I could do about it. Nothing I could do about it. Lots of soreness and pain and, and whatnot. Clearly, I've made a full recovery, and, and so has she. But others inflicted problems. You might be here today, and you're going through a series of problems. And it's being caused by someone else. And they're just wreaking havoc on your life. The third area I wrote down as far as types of problems we face is Satan-inflicted problems. Satan-inflicted problems. We've talked about this quite a bit lately, but when a Christian begins to live their life in a way where they're able to tell the flesh no, they're able to shut down the flesh, they're able to mortify the deeds of the flesh and begin to live with their life with Christ first, what begins to happen is as you put on that armor of God, as Ephesians 6 describes, 
Satan sets out an arsenal, and he, you put a big target on your back for Satan to go after you. And I think of Job, who had his flesh beat. He, he, he was out doing sacrifices for possible sins. He was worshiping God daily, and, 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 and God allowed, uh, pulled back the protection, removed the barrier, and allowed Satan to inflict with pain and sorrow in every way Job. Job had done nothing wrong. Job had not earned this pain in his life, but nonetheless it had been rained down on him by Satan with God's permission. And you might be here today going, I'm hurting on the inside. I'm under attack. I'm in a prison of problems. I'm in emotional shackles. And, 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 and maybe you're the one to blame. Maybe it is others that are to blame. Maybe it is Satan to blame. Maybe it's a combination of the two or, the, or two of those or the three. But nonetheless, you're facing problems. Can I ask you a question this morning? What is your spirit about those problems? What kind of attitude do you have toward your problems? I wrote down here some common reactions that Christians have when problems come into their life. The first one I wrote down is complaining. Complaining. A lot of Christians complain a lot. Anytime things don't go their way, it's complain this and complain that and complain this and complain that. And i got to tell you, when you complain about your problems, it doesn't make them any better. In fact, it just makes it worse. Well, you don't know how my husband talks to me. You don't know how my wife nags me. You don't know how uh, uh, my boss treats me. You don't know about this. You don't know about that. And you complain and complain and complain and complain and complain. I'm here to tell you today, Christian, complaining isn't going to fix anything. Every now and then I'll shake someone's hand and I'll ask them how they're doing. And they'll say, well, I'm doing, I can't complain. I'll say, it wouldn't do any good anyway. How many of you ever heard anybody give that response? doesn't do any good. Don't complain. Other people, you shake their hand and you ask them how they're doing and you, you're like, I won't make that mistake again. <laughs> Listen, a complaining spirit is a sinful spirit. It's a sinful spirit. We all go through trials and hard times, and we may want to share those hard times with others as long as that person, you're sharing it in a spirit where you're seeking help uh, or counsel, there's nothing wrong with that, but make sure your spirit is not one of complaining. Another attitude a lot of Christians have when they're going through problems, regardless of the source, is a faithless attitude. Well, I got I got uh, this going on in my life and that going on in my life, and uh, I just don't know how I'm going to work it out. I got this bill that came in the mail, and it's too expensive, and and I don't know how I'm going to pay it. And I'm buried in bills. I'm buried in credit card debt. And I'd step back and say, probably shouldn't have gotten all those credit cards to begin with, right? Uh, but what's that faithless attitude? Where's the money going to come from to pay for this? I can't work any more hours than I'm already working. My body's wore out and tired. I'm running 100 miles an hour. And Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who is the one that owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Is it you? Or is it God? Why don't we step back instead of having this faithless attitude and have an attitude that says, I can't, but He can. And not only can He, He will. He will. I don't know how. I don't know when. And I don't know in what manner. But I know, I know that He will if I trust Him. Trust Him. A lot of times we, we want to run to other people when we're having a hard time with our, our, our problems. And we want to com- complain and then we want to share our struggles. And, and some people will run and tell everyone that will give them an ear. And you ask them how they're doing and 30 minutes later you're sitting there going... 
they're really having a tough time. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Have you gone to God with your problem? You want to run to your spouse and tell them about how your boss treated you at work. You, you want to run to your spouse and talk about your, your family issues with your, with your parents or your siblings. You want to run to uh, the pastor and tell them about your problems. Can I tell you something today? God can help you much more than I can help you. God can help you much more than your spouse can help you. A faithless attitude. Don't have a faithless attitude. The third thing I wrote down here uh, by way of introduction as far as the spirit Christians have toward their problems is depression. Depression. Some people walk through life and they're depressed. Woe is me. Life is hard. Life stinks. Now I know that uh, there is some depression that comes about from a chemical imbalance in the brain. And if that's the case, I'm not here to pick on you. But can I tell you that most of the times I see people depressed, they're depressed because they're too focused on themselves. They've been too focused on themselves for too long. And there are studies out there that show that people who are focused on others aren't depressed, but people who are focused on themselves become depressed every time. You've got to quit focusing on yourself. Depression. Life is filled with mountaintops and valleys. And a valley can't be a valley unless there's a mountain on both sides. If there's a mountain missing on either side, it becomes a plateau. And you may be walking through a valley that's a little bit longer than you would have wanted it to be. I don't know if it's a financial valley or a medical valley. It may be a relational valley. I don't know what that valley is, but you're walking through a valley. And the longer the valley, the more depressed you become. Can I ask you to take your eyes off yourself and put them on the Lord? Have a spirit that is not filled with depression. The fourth type of bad spirit I see toward our problems or that I wrote down here is that we blame others. Ever since Adam pointed the finger at God and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it is the woman that thou gavest me. Mankind has been looking to blame other people for their problems. Well, uh, uh, it, was, it was my boss at work who conspired against me. That's why I don't have a job. It's, if my wife would treat me better, I'd be a better man. If my husband would treat me better, I'd be a better woman. If, if uh, my children were better behaved, I wouldn't be so stressed out all the time. And this and that and the other. We're constantly looking to blame something or someone. And it's better we just go to God in prayer and say, It's me. It's me. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Blaming others. I look here at Paul and Silas as they had been captured for doing what's right. Stripped naked. Beaten with whips. Thrown in the inner prison. Locked up in shackles. And I don't see complaining. I don't see a faithless attitude. I don't see depression. I don't see blaming others. I see a, a man, I see two men rather, who decided to have the right spirit toward their problems. And this morning, I'd like for us to look at how Paul and Silas remained peaceful during their imprisonment. Peaceful during their imprisonment. Let's look at four ways that they expressed this peace. Point number one of the message today is they prayed to their Savior. They prayed to their Savior. Look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. Acts chapter 16 verse 25. The Bible says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed, they prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Notice when they prayed. They prayed at midnight. 
the darkest hour of the night. When the night was at its at its twi- peak of its twilight, they stopped and they prayed. They prayed. You might feel like that problems are shadowing over you and that it's dark in your heart and it's dark in your life. And I would ask you, who are you going to right now? Are you running to your family? Are you running to your friends? Or are you running to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with that problem? Paul and Silas are sitting there, hands in shackles, and I always imagine this little drip sound in the background, like water dripping. And it's just quiet. No one's saying anything. Either Saul turns to Pilate, uh, uh, Paul, or Paul turns, either Silas turns to Paul, I've got my names turned around there, Silas turns to Paul, or Paul turns to Silas, and one of them says to the other, why don't we pray about this? Why don't we pray about this? And they have a prayer meeting there in the prison. A prayer meeting in the prison. Let me say this morning that if you're having a problem in your life as your pastor, I want to help you. If, if you think I could give you any help or any advice, I encourage you. My office door is always open. You're more than welcome to sit down and I am more than willing to try to help you fix your marriage, help fix your parenting problems. I'm more than willing to try to help you with uh, 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 encouragement that you need from a, a particular situation. I want you to come and sit and share. And I want to be as much of a help as I can. But can I tell you something? You don't need to come to me until first you've gone to God. You don't need to come to me until you've gone to God. God can help you with your problems much, much more than I can. Turn over to Luke chapter uh, 12. Hold your place in Acts. Turn to Luke chapter 12. While you're turning to Luke 12, verse 5, let me read you a couple of verses out of 1 Peter 5. Luke, so you're turning to Luke 12, and I'm going to read 1 Peter 5. The Bible says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. If your problems are self-inflicted, then maybe God's allowing the pain of your choices to humble you, to humiliate you. And the Bible says to humble yourself, and in due time He will exalt you. And then verse 7, we get one of the most encouraging verses where it says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. He careth for you. i got to say that as your pastor, if you're a faithful attendee here, remember, I, I pray over your name every week. Every week. If I know you're going through a particular trial or struggle, I'll generally pray for you more than once a week. But can I tell you that God, you are always on the mind of God. He's constantly thinking about you. He knows your pain. He knows your hurt. And you can come and cast your burden at my feet. I'm just going to take it and hand it to the Lord. You can cast it at the feet of your spouse. They can help you some. But what we're supposed to do is cast our burdens on Him. On Him. For He careth for you. Listen, I can't think of more encouraging words to share with you today than that. God cares for you. You're sitting here going, I feel alone. I feel abandoned. You look to the left and it seems like nobody's there to help you. You look to the right and there's nobody there. You look behind you and you feel like you're all alone. You look out ahead of you and you you say, no man cares for my soul. And I'm here to tell you, look one more direction. You need to look up because there's a God in heaven who's looking down on you and He loves you and He cares for you. He wants you to turn and look up to Him and share your burden with Him and cast it 
at His feet. Look with me at Luke chapter 12 and verse 5 this morning. The Bible says, But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear, or reverence, or respect, or stand in awe of. Fear Him which also, or which after He hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear Him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very uh, uh, hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore ye are of more value than many sparrows. God's looking down on you, and we are to fear Him. We're to fear Him. As my children age and get older, this is becoming less and less true. Although I'll still say that I believe this is still intact, but I can quickly see a day coming when it's not. My little girl thinks that I am the biggest, well she's got that right, amen, biggest, strongest man on the planet. I won't have an arm wrestling contest with any of you, with my daughter watching, because it would disappoint her. She thinks Dad's Superman. She thinks Dad's a superhero. Matthew, I think he's not quite convinced of that anymore. When April does wrong, April is afraid of her dad. She's afraid of dad's punishment, but she's also afraid of disappointing dad. You know, I can remember when they were just a little bit smaller, and I guess this still happens some today, but they'll break a plastic toy, you know, the plastic snaps. And it's not the type of plastic you can hot glue back together. It's in a, you know, at a joint or something where hot glue is just not going to fix it. And they walk that problem up to me and she'll say, Daddy, can you fix it? Can you fix it? She is totally convinced that her dad can fix that broken toy. And I have to look at her and say, I can't do it. Your life broken right now? Are you hurting? Is there pain and problems in your life? Can I tell you that I can't fix every toy April brings me? But there is no problem that you can't take to God that He can't fix. Not one. You've been running around to everybody else telling them about your problem, trying to get help. Have you taken and cast it on Christ? Paul and Silas sitting in the inner prison, arms and feet in shackles, backs are bleeding, hearts are hurting, wondering and bewildered by what had just happened to them, uh, uh, going through a very difficult time. And did they sit in the prison cell and complain? Did they sit in the prison cell and blame others? Did they sit in the prison cell and become depressed? Did they sit in the prison cell and, 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 and just have the wrong spirit? No, they sat in the prison cell and they called out to God and they said, God, you can take care of this. We know you can. What spirit do we have when we're in a prison of problems? Well, number one, we see that we're to be we're to pray to our Savior as they did. Number two, notice they praised with their song. They praised with their song. Look back with me in Acts chapter sixteen and verse twenty-five. The Bible says there, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. Notice this next part, and saying praises unto God. Praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. So they finish up their prayer meeting, and then the singing begins. The singing begins. Do you think they sang country music? How about hip-hop? No, no. I know, they sang rock and roll, right? They sang praises unto God. 
You know, in order for them to naturally turn toward and sing praises unto God, they had to have that in their hearts. My friend, let me ask you a question this morning. What is the, if I could pull out the top ten playlist of the songs that are in your heart, what would they be? Would they be secular? Would they be Christian? You see, if we're listening to music that glorifies the seed of strife, the seed of Satan, the prince of pain, if we're listening to music that's secular in nature, that glorifies self, sin, and Satan, then when it comes to a hard time in our life and we're singing those songs, we're only making matters worse. Matters worse. If we were to take your smartphone, we were to take your MP3 player, we were to go into your car and look at your CDs, and we were to look at your radio presets... Would we find that you're listening to music that glorifies you and sin and Satan? Or would we find music that sings praises unto God? You say, oh, well, pastor, the music I listen to, uh, 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 the words to it are great. And let me just say this this morning, is that it ought not just be the words that are good, it ought to be the music. The music itself needs to be that which brings edifying and glory to God. You can't have... Christian rock music. Rock music was invented uh, uh, out of an illicit lifestyle. In fact, it was invented to promote an illicit lifestyle. You can't take Christian words and illicit music uh, uh, or, or an illicit lifestyle and put that together. You can't do those things. You can't do those things. Your music, as well as the words, need to bring order and harmony and unity and melody to God. I think of uh, Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 18 that says, And be not drunk with wine, uh, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So the Bible is telling us that our the Holy Spirit of God is supposed to control us the way alcohol controls a drunk. Now, how are we to do that? Funny enough, Ephesians 5.18, at the very end of the verse, you don't find a period, you find a semicolon. And be not drunk with wine, where does where does excess? But be filled with the Spirit. Semicolon. What's that semicolon mean? It means whatever follows tells you how to be filled with the Spirit. Very next verse, verse nineteen. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now listen, singing and making rhythm unto the Lord. No, singing and making melody in your hearts unto the Lord. Psalms. Hymns, spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing and making melody. Melody in your heart unto the Lord. Here's the truth. Let's say that your life was like a uh, a 7-Eleven cup sitting up here. And inside that 7-Eleven cup was, um, let's say it was acid. Okay? Now, as long as this pulpit is sitting still you all would not be able to see what was inside that cup. But let me do this right here. And all of a sudden, what's inside the cup spills out. And everyone can see it. Okay, let's put water in that same cup. And let's rattle the pulpit. Water comes spilling out. You see, when life is going great, no one knows what's in the cup of your life. But let a problem come along and rattle you. And whatever is in your heart will come spilling out. 
someone treats you the wrong way. Do you yell? you scream? you let them have it? You have an anger problem in your heart. Something rattles you. Do you sing the right kind of music or the wrong kind of music? Let me say here as well that there's nothing wrong with you singing. In fact, you're commanded to sing. The Bible tells us make a joyful noise. A joyful noise unto the Lord. You say, I can't sing, Pastor. Sing in the shower. Sing in the shower. And if the people in your house hear you and you're off tune, hey, don't bang on the door of someone while they're singing off tune in the shower. Just smile real big and say they're they're, they're making praise unto the Lord. If, if you're not comfortable with that, then when you're riding in the car all by yourself, turn that turn that Christian song up and just let her fly. Pull up to the red light and let her fly. It beats the hip-hop that's in the car next to you that's vibrating the teeth out of your mouth. Amen? Uh, so, let her fly. Uh, sing praises unto God. What kind of spirit do you have? Do you walk around, meatly mouth, wringing your hands, all depressed? No, listen, we're to pray and we're to praise with our song. Number three, uh, what spirit did uh, Paul and Silas have? Number three, we say they, see they preached to the seeker. Look down with me at verse 29 of Acts 16. Verse 29 of Acts 16. And to give you the backstory here, the, the, the prison walls, uh, Paul and Silas are praying and singing, and God sends a mighty earthquake. And the earthquake opens up the shackles, takes them off their hands, and swings the prison doors open, and the keeper of the prison had been asleep. He had been sleeping on the job. I really recommend you don't do that. And the earthquake wakes him up, and he looks in the prison... And he sees uh, that the, sh- the shackles are off and the doors are open and he assumes everybody's left. It's dark down there. And he draws out his sword. And he's getting ready to fall on his sword and kill himself. You say, why was he going to do that? Because if he had let even one person escape, then those in charge would have tortured him to death. It would have been easier for him to kill himself than to die at the hands of these people. He didn't want that to happen. And so he draws his sword... He, lay, he, he gets it angled on the ground. He's going to fall on the sword and kill himself. And Paul yells up and says, Don't do yourself any harm, we're all still here. Look at verse 29. Then he, the prison keeper, called for a light and sprang in, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. Here this prison keeper had been sitting up top, listening down in the prison, hearing the prayer meeting that happened, hearing the singing that happened, maybe even yelling down at them and telling them to stop. Holy Spirit working on his heart on the inside. Working on him. Working on him. Working on him. He falls asleep. The earthquake comes. And he comes and throws himself in the prison at the feet of Paul and Silas and says, Guys, how do I get what you got? How do I get what you got? What did their testimony do? What did the singing and praying cause? It caused them an opportunity to preach someone who had been seeking. I remember during my years at Bible college... uh, 
had a crazy schedule. I, I think I probably averaged four and a half to five hours of sleep a night my whole way through Bible college. I graduated debt-free uh, because I worked a full-time job an hour from campus in order to be able to pay my own way through. I worked at a company called Avert Express. I drove a forklift. I unloaded trailers, and it was a cross-stock type job. And uh, worked with several other college guys, with four or five of us at a time. Sometimes more would work up there. And uh, for four or five years, uh, our missionary, Buna Haas, to Cambodia. Uh, he was a friend of mine. In fact, we rode together to work every day for, again, four or five years, and I got to know him really, really well. Uh, Brian Patterson is a, a pastor out in California. Uh, Charles Osgood's a missionary in Africa. All of us rode together in the same car, and we're all serving the Lord in different places, and we had a great time working that job. Uh, one thing that I soon realized was that not everybody that worked at that company was a Christian. Uh, in fact, there were all kinds of uh, other uh, local people who had the mouth of a sailor. And I'm, that's the women. I'm not even talking about the guys. And they cussed a lot and they talked, they told dirty jokes and uh, they'd laugh about things that were inappropriate and they'd make comments about each other that were out of bounds. And I remember working uh, that job and uh, uh, I remember uh, they would uh, ridicule us and pick on us for living our cleaned up lifestyle. There was a boy there named Steve. Steve was probably 20 or 21 at the time. And Steve just thought it was hilarious that our college didn't have co-ed dorms. That blew him away that we did not have co-ed dorms. What? You guys sleep on like opposite ends and you guys have rules where you're not allowed to touch each other? What? That's crazy. You know, you guys wait to be with each other until marriage? That's mind-blowing. And he would pick on us and put us down and they'd come up with little nicknames to make fun of us and all this. I remember there was another kid there named Nick uh, that worked and Nick's favorite word started with the sixth letter of the alphabet. That was his favorite word. And it's four letters long and I'm not going to tell you what it is but he used it all the time. All the time. All the time. Every other word. I, I, he, he lived. He, he woke up and that was probably the first word he thought every morning. Last word he thought before he went to bed. And, and he was just constantly, constantly cussing at us. And um, I remember one day we were really slow at work and we had swept the dock and we were waiting on more trucks to come in and we got a little bit of downtime. And us college boys, uh, past, past uh, preacher boys were sitting in a circle in our forklifts and we were just talking about whatever, and Nick rides up, and Nick is bleep this, bleep that, bleep this, bleep that, and he's just cussing up a storm, and he's the only one that's not a, a Christian that's there. And after a couple minutes of it, I got tired of it. And I looked at Nick and I said, Nick, you're the only one here that cusses. Nobody's impressed with your language. Can you please stop? Now, I don't bleep and curse because I'm bleeping trying to impress anybody. I bleep, 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 bleep. And he rides off in a huff. And I can remember them giving us a hard time about our stand to do what's right. But can I say in the four or five years that we worked there, I can remember many, many, many times we'd clock out from work. We'd walk out to our car. And um, somebody who worked with us, who had been ridiculing us earlier that day, would walk over and say, Hey, can I get in your car for a minute? I need to talk to you. They'd get in our car. One-on-one, they'd share with us a struggle. Can you pray with me? Can you pray with me? We got to lead three or four or five of those people to the Lord. Why? Because we were steady with our witness. Steady with our witness. They would, we would sing church songs, riding up and down the dock on our forklift, and they'd make fun of us for it. 
Sometimes during a break time, we'd get together as, as, as pastors and we'd pray. We'd always pray over our food. Sometimes we'd have a little prayer meeting there in the break room at work and they'd walk by and they'd laugh at us. But then when they needed help and they were going through a problem, they were right there. Right there. Can you pray with me? Can you pray with me? Are you staying faithful in your witness? You're going through a problem. People are watching you. Christian, I hate to say this, but in a lot of ways you live in a glass house. People know you're a Christian. They preached to the seeker. Let's say the first three points together out loud. The alliteration of the letter P there. Point number one, they out loud together, they prayed to their Savior. Number two, they praised with their song. Number three, they preached to the seeker. Uh, uh, let's uh, look at point number four here. And we'll see that they proved God's superiority. Look down with me at verse 25 of Acts 16. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and saying praises unto God. Let's read those last uh, five words out loud together, can we? And the prisoners heard them. Together again. And the prisoners heard them. You know, while they were singing and praying, while they were busy proclaiming the goodness of God with their backs bleeding and their hearts hurting and uh, uh, the blood running out of their hands and their arms and probably falling their hands, hands and legs, arms and, and, and feet falling asleep, while all that was going on, the prisoners around them were listening. They were soaking it up. Look down at verse 32. And they spake unto him, this is Paul and Silas speaking unto the prison keeper, they spake unto him the word of God and to all that were in his house, and he took them the same hour that night and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. When he had brought them into his house, he sat meet before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. What happened because they sang and they prayed, what happened? God had a chance to prove that He was superior. Can I float a, a possibility past you that maybe you haven't considered this morning? You know that problem you're going through right now? Have you considered that maybe God is allowing you to go through that problem? Because He's trying to prove how powerful He is as someone who's doubting in Him. Don't flub. Don't mess up. Don't fail the test. You walk around, ah, I can't believe this, I can't believe i got to go through this problem. Everybody's watching you. God's not having His superiority proved. But you silently suffer. And you pray. And you seek. And you preach. Boy, what happens? God's superiority has a chance to get proved. This man got saved. Can I float out the possibility that some of those prisoners may have gotten saved because in the prison of problems, they prayed and they praised and they preached. How is God proving Himself real to others in your life by your problems? Is God proving Himself real based on your problems in your life? You know what problems are? Problems are opportunity to prove God's power. If you don't go away today with anything else, go away with this. Your problems are opportunities to prove God's power in your life. Are you letting Him do that? I don't know who came up with this quote. I don't know who to attribute it to, but it's a really good quote and I've added it to my notes here. And if you're taking notes, let me encourage you to write this down. If it weren't for the rocks in its bed of the stream, the river would have no song. If it weren't for the rocks in the bed of its stream, the river would have no song. 
that problem, that kaplunk, lands into your life. Another big problem. Kaplunk in your life. And here comes the river of water called life running down through you. And that song that's sung are those problems singing in harmony that you're giving to the Lord. Christian, can I ask you a question? Are you complaining about problems? Or are you looking at them as an opportunity? I remember as a young Christian, a problem would come in my life and, oh man, oh I hate the valley. Oh, why do I have to go through this? Oh, I can't stand this. The day came where I said, I, I, I stepped back and said, oh boy, oh boy, a problem. Oh man, God's going to do something big. It's going to be good. Oh my, I can't wait. Do I enjoy problems? No more than you do. But I sure enjoy watching how God does something great and big and mighty through my problem. And that's the attitude you've got to have. As a pastor, my job is to try to fix your stinking thinking. We all have some of it, don't we? My job is to try to fix your mentalities about things. And if I can reach in your minds today through the Bible, it's the Word of God that changes you. But if I can reach in your minds today through the Bible and help adjust the way you think toward problems then God can begin to do some big and mighty things through your life. If you're here today, let me make one more application from the pastor's day. If you're here today and you're like that prison guard, that prison keeper, maybe you don't know how to be saved. You say, well, I don't even know what saved means. It's a religious word that's thrown around a lot, but it's a Bible word. The word saved means to be rescued. This prison keeper had to realize that he was on his way to hell because of his sin. And that Jesus Christ was his ticket to heaven. He comes running in, he throws himself down at the feet of Paul and Silas, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And you might be here today saying, Pastor, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? And I'm here to tell you that it's very simple. You gotta do exactly what Paul said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You believe on him, you put your faith in him. And He will rescue you from your sin. He'll give you a home in heaven. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed and every eye closed. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, I know.